You're listening to Paso Chipotle, the show that will take you to discover the edible treasures of Mexico. Episode 16. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Pase Chipotle, the audible companion of Sabor, this is Mexican food, a digital magazine that will take you to explore the markets, streets, recipes and traditions that made Mexico an edible paradise. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food historian, cook and author. To find more information about this project, please go to pasachipotle.com. Find the show on Twitter as Chipotle Podcast. You can subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher and Player FM. As the year rapidly ends, we can already feel in the air winter and autumn colliding. Well, not to mention the clash of Halloween, Dia de Muertos and Christmas Bonanza at every supermarket. Here, at Paz de Chipotle Central, we went from the Mexican Independence Special to Dia de Muertos, or Day of the Dead, and the beautiful and complex traditions that these celebrations involve. And last... I introduced you to the inspiring work of Nicole Macrinos and how she has come a long way from culinary curiosity to introduce her young Spanish language students to Mexican culture through gastronomy. There are still many stories to explore before this year is over, more guests to come to share their expertise, stories and what made them embrace Mexican gastronomy. I want you to know that it is you, the Paz de Chipotle fans, who helped this show grow and evolve. I love reading your comments and know about the many ways in which the show has become a part of your life. So here goes a shout to some of the many wonderful friends of the show. Bilingual Beautiful, Mexican-made Midless, who cooks the books a la vegetarian in the Mexican Caribbean, Bobby 13480, Kara Lovell, Yo-Yo Yoli, and Zomg, who enjoys the show in the Netherlands. Thank you all for your support. Today's episode will hopefully warm you up through these cool days because we'll be talking about chiles, salsas and mole. Many of you have asked for more episodes about this essential ingredient, especially Chris Rice, who is a Patreon supporter of the show and with his donation helps keeping the lights on and the show running. For those not familiar with Patreon, Patreon is a platform that brings together content creators like myself with wonderful and supportive audiences like you, who give donations to sponsor independent projects, like this show. In exchange, you get rewards such as exclusive recipes, blog posts and transcripts of the episodes. To know more about how to support this program, go to patreon.com forward slash chipotlepodcast. And from my new location at the edge of the beautiful Epping Forest in London, England, one story at a time, Pase Chipotle and Sabor, this is Mexican food magazine, will change forever the way you think about Mexican food, cooking and eating. I hope you enjoy this episode. Very often, we tend to associate certain ingredients with national cuisines. For instance, fish with Japan, barley with Scandinavian baking, wheat with Italian pasta, 
plantain with Creole-rich food, and chiles, well, with Mexican food. It is by no means an exaggeration to say that most Mexicans eat chiles practically every day in some form, like salsas, dishes, with their drinks, and even with fruit and sweeties. It is true. Far from being a fashionable trend, chiles have been at the very center of Mexico's gastronomy from its domestication about 6,000 years ago. And ever since, chiles have been enjoyed as a main ingredient or seasoning. But they are also used for spiritual cleanses, religious rituals, and even to inflict corporal punishments in ancient Mexico. Ouch. In colonial times, Bartolomé de las Casas, a Dominican friar and historian, famously recorded that Mexicans wouldn't feel satisfied if there wasn't any chiles in their food. And the Prussian explorer and scientist Alexander von Humboldt very accurately said that in Mexican cuisine, chiles were as necessary as salt itself. In Mexico, chiles are also a symbol of regional identity. They are part of the distinctive flavors that characterize each cuisine. They are highly valued for their taste, texture, and other culinary qualities. They can be dried, used raw, pureed, chopped, charred, fried, boiled, and baked, and used as a seasoning, side, or main dish. In pre-Columbian times, before European garlic and onions were introduced into the Americas, Regional varieties of wild chives were used along with tomatillo and plum red tomatoes to prepare sauces and chili-based dishes. The flavors of the fruits, yes, chiles are fruits, can range from sweet to pungent, fresh, bitter, sharp, nutty, and even citrusy. Wait, 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 but where all those flavors come from, I hear you ask, especially as most supermarkets only sell generic green and red chiles. You see, Mexico is particularly blessed with a large variety of chiles. About 64 different varieties have been fully identified, and it is no surprise that it is the world's largest producer, exporting around 700,000 tons of fresh chiles a year. And it is estimated that annually, every Mexican eats about 15 kilos of chiles. Although not all chiles turn red in the ripening process, most indeed do. And actually, in classical Nahuatl language, the words chilchitik and chilik were used to name the red color, which also is associated with heat. So, chili was indeed considered a hot type of ingredient because it produced a warm sensation in the body when eating it. And so, the Nahuatl word chilmoli meant a paste made out of ground chilies, amongst many other ingredients. And molly actually means to grind or puree, mm, like guacamole or ground avocado. Chiles were so important in the ancient world that there even was a goddess for them, Tlatlauquisihuatl Ichilisti, sister of Tlaloc, the god of rain one of the most important deities in the Aztec pantheon. In the ancient world, chiles were part of the imperial tributes that cities had to pay, and just like coco beans, chiles were also used to pay artisans and craft makers. 
In fact, some landmarks and regions had names associated with Chiles, such as Chilapan or River of Chiles in the state of Guerrero, Chilexpictlan, where chiltepines are cultivated, and Chilistlahuaca or Chiles Meadow. According to the National Institute of Anthropology and Archaeology, around 90% of traditional savory dishes contain chiles across the many regional cuisines in Mexico. And we find that there are two main types of dishes that can be made with them. Salsas or condiments to garnish dishes and as part of broths, soups, adobo sauces and of course mole. Traditionally, the seeds and flesh are used for different purposes. The seeds are often toasted and ground into a paste to serve as base for moles and other dishes, while the flesh or larger chiles are used as a recipient for different types of savory stuffings. The most commonly used chiles, and those more easily available outside Mexico, are poblano, jalapeño, guajillo, serrano, habanero, and árbol. It might surprise you to know that poblano chiles become ancho chiles when dried, just as jalapeños become chipotles. There are two traditional ways to process chiles. Once they've been boiled, fried, or charred, they can be ground on a large metate or grinding stone, or by using a molcajete, which is a Mexican mortar. Metates and molcajetes are made out of a single piece of volcanic rock. The Nahuatl words molicaxtli and temolcaxtli mean stone to cry chilmoli or mole, as we now call the paste. When using a metate, you also need to use a metlapil, which is an elongated stone held with one hand at each end. On this episode's blog post on pasechipotle.com, you can see some images of ancient and modern metates and molcajetes from central Mexico, a region rich in volcanic strata, where the best quality grinding stones are produced. I've been often asked about how many varieties of salsas are in Mexico, and it's really impossible to catalog them all. From the classic green salsas with tomatillos, coriander and serrano chiles, to the peanut tea rich and smoky sauces, the combinations are endless. I've eaten and prepared dozens of salsas. But you know what? I found myself recently quite taken by less common combinations, such as hibiscus, habanero, and blackberries, like the salsas I've enjoyed in Tepoztlan, Morelos, and the many combinations of habanero and mango, papaya and pineapple from Yucatan and Quintana Roo that have a chutney-like flavor. I also like a delicious sauce from my home state of Puebla called salsa borracha, or drunken sauce, which is enriched with pulque, a fermented drink made with agave sap. It is rich and complex, and it has a delicious texture and a balance of smoky notes and just a slightly acidic hint of alcohol from the pulque. It is always served with misiotes or whole barbecue, agave worms, and even carnitas tacos, which are made with chopped, juicy pork meat. You can find the recipe for this salsa on the episode blog post on my website. And now, I want to share with you 
an excerpt from an article I wrote for the summer issue of Sabor, this is Mexican food, and is about the cultural history of mole, specifically mole poblano, an internationally acclaimed dish. You will find that mole is neither a sauce nor has chocolate as a main ingredient, but let me take you now to explore the delicious details of this edible story so you can fall in love with one of Mexico's culinary jewels and one of my favorite dishes in the whole world. When chilmoles slowly shifted into what we now call moles, a key component of the indigenous identity of Mexico was also imprinted in them. Remarkably, this ancient ritualistic aspect of this celebratory meal still reigns triumphantly at the center of our festive tables. The desired consistency of these special types of stews, commonly called chilmoli or moli in Nahuatl, was similar to that of a thick stew, and the addition of corn masa or ground pumpkin and chili seeds was key to achieving a nutty taste and a velvety texture. Dried and fresh chiles were also charred and soaked along with herbs that were then mixed with toast seeds, and these ingredients were then milled using ametate and metlapil. The paste was dissolved in water and seasoned with salt, while chopped vegetables such as cactus paddles, beans or courgettes were then added and slow cooked together. The dish was also often served with pieces of cooked huesolotl, or turkey as you might know it, and eaten with lashkali or tortillas. Chilmoli, or moles, as the Spaniards renamed them, can be as humble or as complex as the occasion requires. Quite often, everyday moles didn't necessarily contain any meat, but fiesta or celebratory moles were and still are served with meats. It is documented that at the royal table of the emperor Moctezuma, who lived at the time of the Spanish invasion, Many moles of distinct colors were served daily at his table, and each was seasoned with different herbs, and some were even presented with edible insects, mushrooms, weeds, fish, wild dog, rabbits, and even iguana or deer. On an interesting note, let me tell you that female cooks were carefully selected to work at the imperial kitchens, and they shouldn't be too fat or too skinny but vivacious and hard-working in order to cope with the daily requirements to produce over 300 different dishes every day. They will prepare all sorts of delicacies, including pozole. I have shared with you the history of pozole soup on episode 8. Its preparation required the flesh of a sacrificed warrior, and the imperial cooks prepared a special version of pozole with wild mushrooms and chili broths to present at the emperor's table. A tale of two pots. During the complex first centuries of the Spanish colony, the Colombian exchange was full in force. This meant an aggressive introduction of European crops and farming animals that required the indigenous people to learn animal husbandry. Pigs in particular were very popular, as well as hen farming. Now, all of this had a significant impact in the new fusion cuisine that will be created in the colonial kitchens of New Spain, including the Spanish costume of using a scandalous amount of pork lard to fry and saute 
a truly disruptive ingredient, especially because the use of animal fats for cooking in the pre-Columbian world was almost inexistent. The emblematic connotations that special chilmolis had in celebrations and rituals were maintained through the colonial period, and moles evolved to become a symbol of cultural resistance that triumphantly crowned every mestizo table. But moles also went through major transformations over the centuries, a slow metamorphosis directly influenced by the international colonial trade. And over the decades, even centuries of exchange, seeds, spices and fruits were added. The prosperous province of Puebla grew to become the most important trade center in New Spain. With trade routes from the Pacific, which brought spices, oils and other exotic ingredients from Asia, converging with the incessant flow of European goods that arrived at the merchant ports in the Gulf of Mexico. Puebla's cuisine benefited greatly from an abundance of new and exotic ingredients, which soon became integrated into existing culinary traditions, diversifying them enormously. Just to give you an idea of the gastronomic diversity, there are over 300 distinct types of moles that have been catalogued during several nationwide ethnographic studies. A truly astonishing number by any measure. But what is so special about Puebla's mole? And why is this one precisely that has been recognized as an emblematic national dish and listed as cultural heritage of mankind by UNESCO? Well, the answer lies in the complexity of its flavors and its luxurious preparation. This mole, which is simply known as mole poblano, distinguishes itself from every other mole in the country. First, for the vast quantity of ingredients, and second, for its laborious preparation, which results in a dish with a sophisticated balance between sweet and piquant seasoning and a rich texture and delicate layers of flavors and aromas. Mole poblano is a whole meal in itself. It is not a garnishing or a sauce, and it has the qualities that make it the centerpiece of any festive table. To wrap up this episode, let me tell you that moles aren't exclusive to one specific region in Mexico, but perhaps more than any other recipe, that from the city of Puebla has been most widely mentioned in many historical documents. Many of them date back to the 17th century, when the cloistered nuns of the Santa Rosa nonnery specially prepared a lavish mole to mark the visit of the Viceroy Tomás Antonio de la Serna y Aragón. Although there isn't a surviving recipe from that event, the proud culinary tradition of Puebla has plenty of historical sources from which a very similar mole with equal complexity has been reproduced ever since. You can find the full story and the step-by-step -step recipe to prepare this wonderful dish at home in the summer issue of Sabor, This is Mexican Food. You can explore more about the magazine at pasdechipotle.com forward slash magazine. Now, keep in mind that when planning on cooking this dish, it is crucial to have all the required ingredients beforehand, as its preparation involves many steps and simultaneous processes that shouldn't be interrupted or postponed. And since both the preparation and enjoyment of moles are an event in itself, 
make sure you are prepared to fully enjoy this delicious project. Day or night, the busy streets of Mexico's towns and cities are constantly buzzing with music, people and the delicious smells that emanate from an unimaginable and amazing range of foods, snacks and drinks. The fall issue of Sabor, This is Mexican Food, celebrates the world-famous Mexican street food and the cultural value of the nation's rich and ethnically diverse cooking traditions. With more than 16 emblematic recipes from the Grand Mexican Street Food Repertoire and five in-depth articles exploring the memorable stories of immigration and entrepreneurship, of family recipes and shared cultures to inspire you making a delicious cultural feast. Build your collection of Sabor This is Mexican Food and enjoy the wonderful articles and recipes whenever and wherever you want. Go to pazichipotle.com forward slash magazine and get ready to cook, learn and enjoy Mexican food like you never imagined. If you enjoyed this show, please rate it and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. This is crucial to help the podcast reaching a bigger audience and deliver more of the food stories you love and enjoy. Support the show on Patreon, the largest platform that connects creators with great audiences like you. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle podcast and select the type of donation you want to make. Every donation makes a big difference. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle podcast and be part of this delicious story. Remember to subscribe to my newsletter to get exclusive content, extra material and special discounts. Find the link on this episode's description. The next episode of the show will feature an interview with food blogger Sonia Méndez, author of the popular blog La Piña en la Cocina. Sonia, or Piña as her fans know her, will share with us her endearing family story and how her parents' love for Mexico's gastronomic heritage gave her and her family a sense of pride and cultural identity as part of the enormous Mexican immigrant diaspora in the US. Don't forget to go to pasachipotle.com to get the recipe for making drunken salsa and enjoy the extra content of today's episode. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Goodbye from me, my friends. Until the next time.